Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot O'Carbui, CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Acast. And I'm delighted today to have as my guest Kevin Empey, who was a former colleague of mine many, many years ago. And we're going to be looking at the whole area of the future of work and the implications of what that has for employers and employees. So, um, Kevin, before we dive into that very interesting topic, um, you might just give us a little bit of a summary of your career to date and, and the interesting things you've been getting up to over the years in your world of work. Sure, Jeremy. Thanks very much. Um, uh, not exactly a linear path uh, to where I suppose very few of us have, but uh, started off like yourself in the technology world um, um, after graduating and then uh, got involved in industry, development industry and uh, economic development down in the, north, uh, the southwest of the country um, with Svadco, who are actually sort of merged into it's basically Enterprise Ireland um, type work. Um, but in the mid-90s, uh, moving back to Dublin to get married, and I was asked to run a uh, set-up and run a training management training company called Delphi. And I suppose that, was, that sparked an interest in the whole area of people and leadership development and the world of work. Um, and uh, moved on from that then into a 20-year consulting career in the whole area of people and leadership consulting with Hay and then was um, head of the HR consulting practice for Willis Towers Watson. Um, was my last corporate job but I guess in the last 10 years or so you know really interested in the whole world of work and what was changing and the future of work etc and the implications to us so in 2017 um, left Willis and set up Work Matters as a dedicated consulting and training company uh, dealing with the changing world of work helping individuals leaders and organizations navigate what was pre-covid uh, even a changing a changing world of work so so that's the kind of territory i've i've uh, i've been in since Great. And as I say, a long career sort of delving into the whole world of work. And and you recently published a book, which I think is very, very timely, given the times that we're in, called Thrive, the Future of Work. What was your motivation for, you know, cause taking on writing a book? You know, I know you're a practitioner and you deal with it day to day, but writing a book is, a, is another particular challenge. What was your motivation for that, Kim? I guess, and, and indeed, even the motivation for setting up Work Matters itself was, uh, I guess, in, in recognition of all the changes that were going on. I guess it all depends where people are coming from in terms of their job and their own experience. But certainly from the experiences I'd had, you could really see over the last 10, 20 years a really increasingly changing world of work. A lot of you know, the digitalization, the pace of change, increased complexity. Um, we were essentially, we seemed to be you know, trying to, um, you know, solve for a changing world of work and there's all this technology in a 21st century with a 20th century kind of approach to, to work and all our management process, etc. And, and even pre-COVID, a lot of stresses and strains in the system in terms of commuting and, and all of that. So, so there was this kind of uh, interest, I guess, I had in this uh, changing world of work. So the, the motivation behind the book was to kind of just just chart that and just see well where are we with that and and more importantly how do we navigate that now as individuals what are the practical implications there's plenty of talk about all the trends and what's going to be happening and automation and all of that but if you set aside all that and you just look at it from our human 
organizational individual perspective that's that was sort of interesting to me as to how we could think about it seemed to be a lot of coping going on and trying to keep up with all this change but actually how do we thrive how do we actually help people and uh, to to thrive and adapt uh, positively to what's going on and take advantage of all the good things that are happening in the changing world of work as opposed to be just trying to run faster to keep up so so that was behind the book it took some time out to do some study and research and put it together in a various uh, various uh, papers, etc. But decided last year, well, two years ago, really, you know, in terms of when, especially when COVID came, that actually maybe it was time to to, to put this together. You did mention the sort of the, the sort of all this change is happening, and and it affects both the individual and and the organisation. What are the big things that are happening in terms of tra- challenges and, and trends? And we'll, we'll maybe dive in a bit a little more in some of the more specific how it impacts the individual. Uh, us uh, in, as individuals and employers at a later, but the big picture stuff. What are, what are the big things do you saw that were going to cause this sort of disruption that we're seeing? See, and even if you go back pre-COVID, there was a lot of things going on. Um, I mean, I, I guess you, you you really have to start with the whole area of digitalization and the sort of converging enabling technologies, the exponential rise in enabling technologies that were impacting because they they were directly impacting work and jobs and skills. So certainly that was something that there was an exponential rise and application of new technologies really since the 20th century. The iPhone is only, what, 2007? I mean, you know, it's really since that turn of the century there's been such a kind of rapid increase in that. And along with that then, you know, this hyper-connectivity that we have around the world, globalization, we can get work done immediately in real time, you know, from the fourth corners of the earth. And, and that, was, that was leading to issues of, well, work flexibility. Um, and suddenly you could see the old model of actually work being done in an organization and in a building, you know, beginning to, to change. Um, but as well as work and technology um, happening, there was also societal attitudes, I think, to, to work to, you know, from when you and I started off, you know, changes in attitudes, uh, generational changes, multi-generations at work, five generations at work, longer working lives. So there was, these are just some of them. I think uh, Harvard picked out 17 forces in 2019. I think they talked about um, but for me, it's actually more about the convergence of these, Dermot, that have been happening. There's a lot of these things happening at the same time and at a pace of change as well that probably sets this time we're going through, you know, differently to maybe previous cycles. Because people would say, sure, the world of work has always changed. And it has. Um, but there's something about the pace of change and the complexity around the last 20 years that we seem to have been struggling to keep up with uh, and solve for. And of course, you know, COVID has accelerated all of those things uh, and given everybody a common experience as well. Absolutely. And sometimes when you're in the middle of it, you can't see what's what's going on, all the all the pace that change and the depth of change. It's like the boiling frog idea, isn't it? It's like, well, what has really changed? Then you look back five years and say, gosh, that job didn't exist, you know. So, so you're right. It, there was something about the future of work hadn't quite landed with people, you know, in in a common way. But I guess COVID has actually given everybody a, a global experience of of actually what does change in work really feel like and look like. The title of your book is Thrive. You know, from, from the individual perspective, what sort of things do individual um, workers need to be doing to thrive as they adapt and as they get familiar with this rapid change that can change all the preconceived notions that, as we said, when we started out, 
you know, the, I know it's long gone, but the jo- there used to be a job for life. That's long gone. But, the, but as you said, the pace of change and the depth of that change yeah, yeah. It, 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 it has accelerated. So th- for the individual, what sort of things should they be thinking to, 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 that they thrive, that they don't get overwhelmed? Absolutely. And also be aware of the opportunity that, that all of this does. We tend to kind of focus sometimes on some of the difficulties and the tensions that are good, but there's also a great opportunity. Um, you know, and I think because Jacobson has said, it was you know, it's never been a better time and never been a more concerning time for the employee, and it's kind of like because there's there's so much going on. I, I guess for, for me, and quite a big focus of the book was that individual perspective. And while you get a lot of talk, obviously about skills, you know, and the need to update your skills, and uh, you know, the whole digital and STEM, and also the creative skills, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I guess what interested me, Jim, it was the more underlying adaptive skill set the more longer term how do we how do we maybe surface some of those um, adaptive skills that will enable us to be more comfortable with this change or to be more accepting of it um, and as I say to see it with the more glass half full than half empty so we we, we, we studied and actually got uh, you know a lot of research done on well what are examples? What is it that individuals who seem to be thriving in this rapidly changing kind of environment, what were the skills, the attributes, what were the, the mindset, if you like, and the skill set that they seem to have that gave them more comfort in this uh, changing work environment than maybe more traditional approaches, maybe looking for a more longer term, linear and stable uh, kind of career paths? Um, and there were types of things that, you know, and I, and I suppose the value of the type of work was, was to try to surface these and make them more front of mind as we go forward. And there were things like, things that you'd expect, the learning, a learning mindset, if you like, an openness uh, to, to learning and unlearning as well, to, based on what's changing around us, so an openness to learning, an orientation to change. You know, were we fighting change or were we actually accepting and embracing change a bit? Um, self-empowerment, um, the idea of just self being self-led and, and, and taking charge of your own your own path. Um, relationship skills, even handling conflict and networking, those kind of skills, and, and collaboration and working with others because nobody's going to have the answer. You know, you, you need others to, to get stuff done. You may have had traditional networking skills, but they're going to be different or they need to be enhanced. Exactly. And, and that I think openness kept coming up as being a sort of a common thing, open to actually saying, well, this is how I did it before and that worked and served me well. But actually the, the world has shifted a bit and I need to take that skill set and, and adapt it over here. But it was interesting, uh, probably the, so there's five or six traits, I think I mentioned five of them. The, the sixth one was an interesting one because it seemed to underpin the others. And those who seemed to be thriving in this kind of fast-paced, changing world of work were those who had what we just called, there was a purposefulness about them. Um, they were kind of st- steady um, and, and they kind of knew about what they were about and what they were, what was important to them. You know their values and and the direction, broad direction they wanted to take, and those that had that sort of sense of where they were going, a bit like sort of having a north star type idea. You know, maybe that they don't know exactly what they want, but they have a general sense of their direction. They were able to be less distracted by all of this change and noise around them, and they 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 had a learning mindset because they were driven by you know what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go. They they were open to change. They had the collaborative skills, relationship, etc. So it was just what we tried to do again in the book was just package that skill set and say, actually, even though the, some of those are quite intuitive, isn't it 
it's probably worthwhile us surfacing those and having them more front of mind. Absolutely, absolutely. And as you were speaking, I was just reflecting here in Carmichael. Um, this year, I have not. There's been an explosion of staff wanting to do mm. development and, and 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 skill development at, at a rate that I've never seen before. So, which, which is fantastic. Normally, we're trying to encourage. Now they're coming and say, I want to do. And very, fairly big pieces of, of, of skill development, not short, sharp things. Very, very, you know, so we have, a, we have a, quite a number of them doing professional diplomas. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that I would not have taught intuitively would, would be signing up and say, I want to do a, a, an extended program of development, which is brilliant. So I think maybe that COVID give people time to reflect mm-hmm. and, and, um, and, and what they want and the value they want to have from their role and, the, as you say, purpose is very, very, very much the, sort of what is the purpose of what I'm doing and do I want to change that or influence that purpose and by upskilling myself. That's the individual. And, and, and the other side of that equation is this: all this change and opportunities also is from the organisation perspective is there as well. What sort of things should organisations be doing in the in this whirlpool of, of, of change that we're seeing. And, goodness, one of the things about organisations, one of the things they need to do is just even reflect on what they've managed to do in the last two or three years because if if, if they can adapt and change and pivot and uh, reorientate and reset what they've been doing over the last two or three years, that's the type of um, muscle and skill set that they're going to need in the future. But maybe something that helps... Maybe answer that question is, um, you know, one of the things is, well, what do you mean by future of work in general anyway? I mean, for me, actually, it's a, there is real no great definition. It's a label of convenience that's used for all these things we're talking about. But one definition I've, I've used which can help in that question of what the organization maybe needs to think about or prioritize is um, it's really the future of work when you think about it. It's, it's a fusion between business adaptability um, so an external adaptability to what's going on uh, and how we're serving in terms of our services and products. Business adaptability, organizational agility, internal, I suppose, ability to be able to flex resources. And, and thirdly, uh, the changing nature of work and the workplace for the talent that it has and needs in the future. So those three pillars, business adaptability, the external piece, the organisational agility, the internal piece, and then this recognition that work in the workplace is changing and the talent that you need is changing. Um, If you had those three sort of strategic pillars, you could start to maybe think about, well, how are we responding to those? How are we, how do we rate against our current model, you know, in terms of those three areas? Um, and take, for instance, organisational agility is, is an area where it's thrown around and it's, it's kind of often quoted, but that's actually quite poorly understood and executed. So one of the things we've tried to do is to sort of unpick that a little bit and help people really understand, well, what do we mean by agility and how can we put it into our DNA and our operating models, etc.? So again, it's about the practical dissemination of some of these things and simplification of them. We've all been through, and we touched on this sort of force experiment in, in, in new working models with, with COVID, and things that we didn't think was possible or were practical were proven to be the opposite, that they were very, very feasible. And, and I'm talking about the sort of the working from home and now the sort of the emerging hybrid, uh, hybrid model of some days at home and some days in, in the office. What, 
What are the lessons have we learned from that sort of forced experiment? Or is it too early to see some of the sort of the deeper implications of, of what we've been through in the last two and two and a half years? Well, I think you started off by by saying the very most important is that we've proven, we've shown to ourselves actually that uh, what is possible, what is possible when you really turn our model or, and our assumptions of work upside down and you kind of say, well, actually, do we have the technology? There were several people, you know, I knew were doing small pilots, you know, about work flexibility. Let's try half a day from home and whether that can work. And suddenly it was five days. So we've proven to ourselves, actually, that we can, we can, we can change and we actually have uh, some of the skill set. Um, and I think that goes beyond just the technology piece. I think it, it's, it's actually helped to prove from a productivity point of view and a trust perspective, maybe some old assumptions around command and control structures that actually, you know, we don't necessarily need to rely on anymore. Um, uh, and, and also, though, as well as the remote and flexible working um, learnings we have, I think we've also learned to appreciate the traditional, some of the traditional stuff around work as well, the, the importance of being together and to collaborating, that human, you know, interaction, the serendipitous kind of like uh, meetings and discussions. And we probably appreciate some of that in-person experience in work um, where we took that for granted before. And now we're in a situation where we're having to design a new way or a third way, as I call it, um, where actually we're going to have to be more deliberate about these interactions that we have and when's best to work, you know, flexibly, when's best to work, what's best to, uh, in the office, etc. And I, I agree, and it, it's just taken from personally from my own role as chief executive in this organisation, there were some staff that could not wait to get back into the office yeah. for various reasons. Um, and then there are others that are thriving in, in, in the ability to be more control of their working day and their working location and still maintain to deliver, you know, perform to the, the required standard. But it is still, we haven't figured out what works best um, for both the organisation and for the individual. And we also have the complication that there are certain roles that must be in the office. And what the danger of sort of you created a, a two-tier system or a different class and where people will... And that's one of the things we're looking at. But one of the challenges and talking to others that, uh, you know, concern people have is going back into the whole thing about organisation culture and embedding that culture and the values and ethos of the organisation with throughout the organisation gets more difficult where you have people that are maybe relatively new to the organisation or get more detached from the organisation by that distance of not being having the, the in contact in person on a, a regular basis. What sort of things have you seen organisations do to try and tackle that particular challenge? I think first of all it's acknowledging it and you know rather than saying trying to force and pretend that nothing is changing I think you know, once you get to a situation where there's a bunch of folks who are maybe working almost half time, you know, outside and, and the office environment, etc., you have to acknowledge that we're dealing with a, a very different model of work. Um, and people, you're dead right. Uh, you know, when when we work with with folks, the, the, probably the two most common issues people talk about is culture and connectivity, um, and performance and productivity as well. There's a concern about that too. But on the culture and connectivity piece. It's actually turning into, you can, again, look at this half empty, half full, but an opportunity to, to actually reset what is the culture that we need for, the, for, for, for going forward. And, 
um, actually been more deliberate about some of those moments, if you like, and making the moments that matter, if you like, in, in the in, in the office. But but also working out digitally, how do we convey culture in a remote setting as well? So we're actually having to work harder at the at the culture and connectivity question, and and things like values, organizational values. What we're finding is. Rather than just accepting those as things on the wall, we're actually having to use them and, and think more seriously about well whether they are serving us or whether they're actually just, you know, labels that we've used. But it's a tough one for leaders and, and, and managers, I think, um, because they are so much the custodians of the culture. Really, what you know, they are that they are the culture uh, in terms of how they role model this. So leaders, as well as trying to figure this out for themselves and their own personal <laughs> views and biases and wishes, etc., are having to think through this culture and connection question for the rest of the organization too. Um, and sometimes maybe some of those um, directions are at odds with you know, where some of their people might be. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenging time, I think, for the leaders and, and I think line managers as well. I think, yes, uh, just reflecting again on that, the whole aspect that culture what does culture mean in in this new hybrid model and how do how how do leaders of the organization embed that and 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 enable that culture that 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 happens not just those that are in the office some days of the week but also those that are not in the office for long periods of the the working year because of the nature of the work or the, the the model that they're working under um, just moving to sort of you know look reflecting and thinking about this um, podcast, I was my, my, my personally uh, my daughter started working for a large multinational um, early on in the year, um, and her work experience to date, and it's over six months, is effectively working from her bedroom. Mm-hmm. And I'm contrasting when you and I started in Andersons all those years ago, a big part of that sort of getting getting uh, sort of empty, uh, uh, sort of a empathy with the organization or, a, or a, a bond with the organization was with your peers and and that the socialization in work and and after work that's missing now and i'm just wondering for that cohort of people that have started their their working lives left college and spent the last two years of the college probably online and now going into a, an environment where it's, it's it's nearly all screen based what what sort of things should they be doing to thrive in in this new 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 experience for them it's, there's a lot on them, isn't there? And uh, some of us on the same, gone through the same experience, and uh, hasn't doesn't don't know anything about working life other than remote working. Um, and it's very interesting talking. And that's one of the first things I think employers need to do is listen to their experiences and their stories. You know, because you know he'd say, "Well, what do you mean? I haven't learned anything over the last year. I've been doing nothing but learning, even though it's remoting. So remote working." But to your, to your question, I. I think there's more. Um, first of all, I think that fully remote experience that you know um, uh, our families have experienced. I don't think that will, will you know, pertain into the future. That there will be a mixed model of some kind. So, and I think uh, from the employers we talk to, they are really trying to craft a work experience that does get the best of both worlds. The danger is, of course, if we don't do that properly, we get the worst of both worlds, and you end up with you know that sort of bedroom you know uh, working kind of experience, and where we know that there's 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 something missing there. So there's something I would be very hopeful that I think this will this will settle, uh, you know, and and that experience will be more blended. But in terms of what they, I, I think in more than in our generation, I think uh, the younger folks are going to have to be more deliberate about their own career and skills navigation. You know, in the sense that we went to an office environment, and we almost just 
it almost happened organically. It happened almost, you just turned up <laughs> and, and things whereas you know if you're there and you're working you know and again you're remotely and you're delivering for your team you're having to think and this is where coaching and mentoring comes in from others in the in the, in the organization is what else do i need to do to carve a career for myself and to build other skills so those skills i mentioned you know the learning mindset change i think skill sets like that are going to have to be more um brought to the surface more they're going to have to be more self-aware about what is it I need to do? What's my three-step plan you know, to, to navigate through this? How do I look after myself here? Because there's only a limit to what the organization is going to be able to, to put on a plate for me. I think there's more of that um, self-led approach uh, that probably than, you know, in, in, in generations gone by. Um, but, but I think when you hear, talk to young people too as well, they want, well, hang on, we want some of this flexibility too, please. You know, so it's not like we're, we're looking for five days in the office, thanks very much. You know, we want some of this too. Um, so not to kind of you know, assume what's best um, uh, for them, but just try and maybe give them the skills and the environment uh, that uh, uh, they need. We, we're seeing, for instance, sort of three areas of productivity now uh, emerge. So task productivity in other words i could from my bedroom I, I could deliver on the tasks absolutely but we recognize that in young people particularly that there's such thing as social productivity as well in terms of networking building a network uh engaging with others um collaborating innovating problem solving um so you know task productivity but also social productivity and learning productivity if we're serious about development and learning being an important part of future performance then we've got to prioritize learning productivity if you like so i think that's one of the things that you know is is going to change that it'll soon be on their performance scorecard to engage beyond the kind of zoom uh, experience just conscious of that it leads me nicely into the next question i want to put to you is we've been talking about the individual the organization but there's there is the whole area of the societal change that uh, that's been going on, and what sort of things do policy policymakers need to be thinking and putting in place that make sure that people don't get left behind? Because there's a huge onus on the individual, just you described, to sort of self direct and, and and take control, and some will thrive on that. Because and they have resources, they have resources and and they've been given toolkits, and they've got a support structure. Not not everybody may not have that support of toolkit to, to start out with. What sort of things the policymakers need to be thinking about? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that, and in fact, I put a, a chapter in the book specifically on the societal implications of all of this stuff, and um, and learnings from other maybe countries as well. And and I, one area of hope I would have is that I think we're more aware of some of this than others. This it's a lovely phrase you say: "Let nobody be left behind." Be left behind. And that as a sort of a rally call, I think, is very important at a societal political level. I, I think tactically, though, if you think about, OK, that's all very well to say, but how is that going to be executed? I think latching on to some of the emerging trends and frameworks around, say, ESG, so, you know, the environment, social governance standards that employers are now being expected to deliver on and report on in terms of good governance and also where investors are beginning to sort of say well actually where's your ESG you know response the S in that ESG is a social uh, piece which does talk about how do we future proof people's skills how do we contribute our resources to a wider society not just ours 
So I think there's something, there's some, there's some good things going on in terms of watching out for this. Uh, but I think at a more local level, I, I've certainly been uh, you know, on record as you know, saying, well, really, is our response as a sort of a country really future fit? Into, we have such great initiatives that go on in, say, the Department of Education or the Department of you know, Jobs, but they tend to be, I don't know how joined up we are in terms of charting out a strategy for the country in terms of future future of work. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a lot of individual, well-meaning kind of things going on. But I know, for instance, in some of my work you know, in, in, in Germany, for instance, in one of the regions, got the societal arms. So they got the equivalent of the Citizens' Assembly and they got the youth organisations and the education establishments inputting into where is the world of work going and how do we kind of have a a more a, a, a platform of action, if you like, for making sure that our societal um, systems and our support systems and our education systems are in line with each other towards a better working future for everybody, as opposed to just policy being made up on an election cycle. Do you know what I mean? Uh, something more, something more sustainable in terms of policy. So I think we've we've a fair bit of work to do there. Absolutely, that's fascinating what you're saying was happening in Germany. But, you know, it is that longer range thinking, but also bringing in different voices into it that. It, it, well. Yeah, yeah. In, in, and it's not it's not party political. It is it's something we're all experiencing. We've been talking in general terms about the impact of all this change generally, and 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 you know. Is there anything particular for the non-profit? Because a lot of it, it does apply. But from, from from you looking in um, and be f- very familiar with the non-profit sector, mm-hmm. is there anything specific that non-profit organisations or, or people working in non-profit need to take on that's over and above what applies to anybody that's uh, trying to make uh, thrive in this changing world of work? I guess ultimately, if you stood back, we are. It's it's a competitive marketplace for talent, and so much as I am aware of, you know, from my work in this sector, that you know, we we depend so much on the talent of individuals, you know, uh, to, to 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 deliver on all of the work that's needed and the invaluable work that is done. Um, we need the talent to do that. So therefore, we're in a kind of situation where we're now competing, you know, for that talent against organisations who are also very aware of. The individuals need and wants for needs and wants for flexibility, uh, for learning and development, for growth, for meaning and purpose, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so if you like, private sector employers are are on this as well in terms of trying to attract people with their great policies and practices, and arguably they've got more resources to show at that. Um, so again, not for profit is going to probably struggle in you know having those same resources or firepower to to do it, but. At the same time, you know, how do we optimize or maximize our strengths and our offering, you know, to people in terms of, you know, maybe flexibility or availing of some of these flex. So maybe we can access skills and access talent from anywhere now, whereas we don't have to have people all in, you know, one location. So how are we as a sector um, capitalizing on uh, some of these trends? Uh, was is one sort of thing, and I think it's a good question. We should we should be able to do that, because and 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 also how are we um, improving or or communicating our offer, our our distinct offering as a as a great career path as and 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 also delivering on that. I think sometimes the mission of some 
not-for-profits is seen as, well, sure, aren't we doing great work? Won't that attract people in itself? We've got to deliver on people's needs and wants. You know, they, they, have, they have professions, they have families, they have, they, have, they have development paths as well. So I think there's lessons we can learn about, you know, charting out of what a proposition looks like and, and maximising our, our position, because there's no doubt people saying, looking, you know, maybe money is important at a particular time, but also looking at, you know, meaningful work, and purposeful work, um, and also taking breaks from career paths, taking two, three years out, or maybe at retirement, you know, when still fully able to take on. So the, there's there's advantages or there's possibilities and potential about capturing talent at different parts of the life cycle as well that maybe the not-profit could, could really capitalise on more than a, a profit-based company could. You're, you're sticking to your glasses half full of sort of um, approach. No, but you, there are there are always different specific challenges for the non-profit sector, but there's a huge advantage as well. But I think it is getting down to being able to communicate. Well, what is it that the non-profits can offer, and 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 and, and, and advantages that it has? This has been fascinating, Kevin. I really really enjoyed it uh, in the conversation because it touches so many things that people are thinking about, whether they're going about into the workforce, in the workforce, or an employer, or trying to figure out how we provide that sort of environment for going mm-hmm. in the future. So I really, really enjoyed the conversation. My final wrap-up question that I ask all my guests is, you know, the, the, the sort of the magic wands moment. If, if you had three wishes for the charity sector in Ireland, what would you like to see happening mm-hmm. over the next five years? You know, having set up a a charity myself called Worklink and so I was very aware of, of some of the uh, challenges involved in the funding and operation and the placing and the positioning of a, of a charitable um, you know, uh, offering and, and organising services and, and certainly one thing from that experience would be you know, you'd love to see a proper support coordination assistance and alignment from the system I mean the public, the public system um, as a you know, a key channel for providing, you know, recognising the charitable sector as such a key channel for providing critical services um, in our society. And because I recall in my own experience of, you know, we, we were providing free professional career counselling services to unemployed people. You kind of go, isn't that worthy? It's pretty good. But actually quite a lot of the time was spent working against the system in terms of trying to kind of get it to to engage and to and to to, to align um, whatever about the funding, even just the permission to play. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I found that. So there's something about just that um, support and uh, coordination and alignment piece. Um, there's no doubt sustainable ways of funding. Um, you'd love to see. You know, is there more that can be done in the taxation system? You know, to incentivize, um, you know, private funding or whatever it might be, or indeed public funding. Um, and other creative ways to fund the sector. Um, but, you know, really what I would you know, really like to, to see, and I say this too about sometimes the you know, public service as well, is that the, the sector is just highlighted and evident as, as a positive and rewarding place to have a career um, and, and also a post-career environment for talent because one of the trends around future of work is longevity. And you've got folks who maybe, you know, in their third chapter, as they say, you know, have so much to give. And, and um, what would be great to see is the charitable sector really soak up the majority of, of that talent that's, that's there um, and give people, you know, such a great environment for their own personal 
you know, development and growth. So, so something about just being highlighted and being clearly identified as a sector of choice, you know, for, for, for professional development, sustainable funding and, and then this alignment with the system. Why do we have to fight so hard against the, you know, <laughs> and I'm sure you could tell me many stories. Indeed, indeed, you know, a lot of people come to us with fantastic energy and, and ideas, but it's a grind mm-hmm. and it's, it is a slog. <laughs> And it shouldn't be, and it is, it is, and there are a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, just just that initial stage trying to get something up and running, no matter what it is, whether it's non-profit or for-profit, it is difficult, but there seems to be that additional challenge of trying to get onto the pitch in the first place and being let in, and because it's a highly regulated sector, and there's good reasons for that, but it does make it difficult for new organisations to get into the charity sector. Kevin, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed our, our conversation and loads of things for myself and I'm sure anyone listening to the, to reflect on and to think, so what do I, what do my organisation need to do in this, in this changing world of work? So thank you so much. No problem, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, Slán Gafol. Go